Hello and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode 22. Today we're talking about cavemen, best Bible verses about dung, and why does God throw somebody out of his wedding feast? So, I gotta be honest. If this podcast were written and recorded by my precious wife, it would be vastly different. Much more sober-minded, serious, and a good bit shorter. It would have the same scripture passages, but you would probably never have an episode about cavemen and dung. However, this podcast is not by my wife, so today's episode is on cavemen and dung, and also a really important parable of Jesus. I suppose it's a little silly of me for a daily podcast to try to tackle three questions in this episode, but they're all interesting, all worthy of an answer, so hopefully it will work out for us. And as a bonus, we have a special guest, Charles Spurgeon, with us today to answer the best and most important question, so hopefully that'll be a big help for us. Today's passages are Genesis 23, which is about the death of Abraham's precious wife, Sarah, and his attempts to find her a burial place. Nehemiah 12, which mentions the dung gate we're going to talk about today, and uh, also has about a thousand Hebrew names for me to stumble over. Matthew 22, which features Jesus's awesome and unsettling parable of the wedding banquet. And finally, Acts 22, which gives us the story of Paul's salvation on the Damascus Road from Paul's own perspective. So with our reading today, let's do a little bit of a twist. Let's start with Genesis 23, then Matthew 22, then some commentary and the best Bible verses on dung, then the rest of the passages, slightly different order on the podcast today. Genesis chapter 23, verse 1. Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were all the years of her life. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham got up from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hethites. I am an alien residing among you. Give me burial property so that I can bury my dead. The Hethites replied to Abraham, Listen to us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in our finest place. None of us will withhold from you his burial place for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down to the Hethites, the people of the land. He said to them, If you are willing for me to bury my dead, listen to me and ask Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf to give me the cave of Machpelah that belongs to him. It's at the end of his field. Let it give it, let him give it to me in your presence for the full price as burial property. Ephron was sitting among the Hethites, so in the hearing of all the Hethites who came to the gate of his city, Ephron the Hethite answered Abraham, No, my lord, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the sight of my people. Bury your dead. Abraham bowed down to the people of the land and said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, Listen to me, if you please. Let me pay the price of the field, accept it from me, and let me bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham and said to him, My lord, listen to me. Land worth four hundred shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed with Ephron, and Abraham weighed out to Ephron the silver that he had agreed to in the hearing of the Hethites, 
400 standard shekels of silver. So Ephron's field at Machpelah, near Mamre, the field with its cave and all the trees anywhere within the border boundaries of the field, became Abraham's possession in the sight of all the Hethites who came to the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave of the field at Machpelah near Mamre, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field with its cave passed from the Hethites to Abraham as burial property. That's a pretty interesting little uh, peek into ancient negotiating tactics. This is Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to summon those invited to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent his other servants and said, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and fattened calf have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away, one to his own farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent out his troops, killed those murderers, and burned down their city. Then he told his servants, The banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go then to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So those servants went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. When the king came in to see his guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. So he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, Give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. That same day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came up to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first got married and died. Having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second also, and to the third, and so on, so on, to all seven. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, then, whose wife will she be of the seven? For they all had married her. Jesus answered them, You are mistaken, because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, 
but are like the angels in heaven. Now, concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. While the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, "Mm, David's. He asked them, How is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? No one was able to answer him at all, and from that day no one dared to ask him any more questions. So I got a question a couple of weeks ago from podcast listener Sherry, who asked where cavemen fit into the biblical timeline and whether or not most humans lived in caves at one point in time. That's a great question. I think many of us picture there being an era of history or prehistory on the earth where the majority of humans lived in caves. And they were therefore cavemen, or cave people, if we're being nice and inclusive. With an understanding that I am a history major, but not an archaeologist or anthropologist, let's tackle the question with a few facts about humans in cave dwelling. Number one, yes, humans have, over the years, lived in caves. However, there was never a time... On this planet, when the majority of humans lived in caves for the following three major reasons, and there's actually probably a lot more than these three, but here's a few of them. Number one, there just aren't that many caves around. Some regions are blessed with a plethora of caves, but most areas of the earth lack caves or, you know, only have a few, and they're very sporadic around. Reason number two, Caves are dark and dank and not usually ideal places to live because humans need sunlight and they also need light to see. And even very large caves only have a small amount of livable space that has light. Now, I was a spelunker a long time ago. It's been a while since I've been in a cave, but back in my day, I've been in many, many, many caves, Uh, almost all of them. Uh, not perfect, no, not the kind of caves you pay to get in, but rather the kind of caves you have to find and such. And I can tell you, if you've never been in a cave before, I mean a real natural cave, not one with lights run to it. If you've never been in a cave before, caves are dark, like darker than you can possibly imagine. And you don't have to go very far away from the entrance before the cave gets unlivably dark. Reason number three. Caves tend to attract non-human dwellers that are less than good human roommates. 
like bears, snakes, hyenas, wolves, captain cavemen, all of those are kind of a threat to humans. So while humans did use caves, they did bury their dead there. They did camp there from time to time. They did draw art there. Most humans of a given society did not live in caves. Though, of course, again, some did in various places around the earth. Second big cave fact. There are some modern people who still live in caves, or at least houses built into caves, and I would imagine they don't want to be called cave people. But I will tell you this, and it's pretty fascinating. Google Ambois, A-M-B-O-I-S-E, troglodyte, T-R-O-G-L-O-D-Y-T-E, Ambois troglodyte home, And you can legit find an Airbnb for a cave house that you can rent for only $89 a night the next time you are in the Loire Valley in France. Now, you might not go there a lot, but $89 a night is pretty cool. And you should at least go check out the pictures of this place. I mean, this is a house, and there's several of them. This one you can rent. This is a house legitimately built into a cave, and it looks super cool. I've been to France once. Awesome place. The bread is amazing. But if I go again... I'm laying down the 89 bucks and staying at the Ambois Troglodyte home because that would be awesome. All right, cave fact number three. There were people in the Bible who lived in caves. In fact, you find several discussions in the Bible about people being in caves. King David hid out in a cave. King Saul went into the cave to uh, relieve himself. The book of Job mentions that there were people who lived in caves. Uh, You can see this in Job 30, verse 6, and I think actually one other place in Job. Job kind of tells us that the people that lived in caves in his day were like outlaws and desperate people and really not normal people. But I just be honest with you, I'm tired of stereotyping cave dwellers. Job, get with the time, you boomer. It's 2020. We don't look down on people just because they live in caves, right? Okay, I'm kidding. Here's our question number two of the day. And I'm going to open with uh, the slightest off-color joke. But this is probably my favorite joke in middle school. And here it is, because it's appropriate for today. What's brown and sounds like a bell? Dung... More importantly, and more biblically, what was the dung gate of Jerusalem? And the answer is that, at least in Nehemiah's time, it was about what you'd imagine a dung gate to be. It was an entrance and an exit from Jerusalem where trash, refuse, and yes, human and animal waste were taken outside of the city. The Hebrew word there is sha'ar ashpath. And it sort of means gate of garbage. So we're not just talking about uh, poop. We're also talking about um, the remnants of uh, sacrifices, ashes from fire, trash from eating, you know, plastic Twinkie wrappers and such. Okay, probably not that, but you know, the kind of thing that humans built up. And there was almost certainly a dump of some sort that was really close to the dung gate. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, there's a dung gate there today. 
but it's not the same function and it's not really even in the same place. The Dung Gate today in Jerusalem is uh, is one of the main entrances into the Old Town area. And uh, as far as I know, it's not really used to transport dung here in and out. But I do want to give you some Bible verses on dung because believe it or not, the Bible talks uh, quite a bit, a surprising amount, I guess, about dung. So, Here's the top four verses about dung in the Bible, and I don't really have a a drummer that can give me a drum roll, please, so we'll just start with Job chapter 20, verse 4. Don't you know that ever since antiquity, from the time a human was placed on earth, the joy of the wicked has been brief and the happiness of the godless has lasted only a moment? Though his arrogance reaches heaven and his head touches the clouds, he will vanish forever like his own dung. Now, that's a very colorful saying by Zophar the Naamathite. He will vanish forever like his own dung. I don't recommend you memorize that verse, but there it is. It's in the Bible. Next verse, 1 Kings 14, verse 10. Because of all this, God says, I am about to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam, who was a wicked king. I will wipe out all of Jeroboam's males, both slave and free, in Israel. I will sweep away the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it it is all gone. Well, how about that for a colorful Bible passage? Next one, 2 Kings 6.24. Sometime later, King Ben-Hadad of Aram brought all his military units together and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. So there was a severe famine in Samaria, and they continued the siege against it until a donkey's head sold for 34 ounces of silver and a cup of dove's dung sold for two ounces of silver. Now, I guess we're going to talk about this passage a little more when we get to First Kings, but it's gross and heartrending and all of that. But basically, there was a siege of Samaria, and the people were starving and ran out of food, and they were reduced to paying exorbitant prices for donkey's heads and dove poop. Uh, that's just, let's move on to the last one. And believe it or not, the last and best verse on dung, a powerful spiritual verse, and I'm not even kidding, is in Philippians chapter three, verse seven. And a lot of modern translations sort of mute what's going on here, but good for you, Christian Standard Bible, because you gave us the right word and the accurate translation. Verse seven. Everything that was a gain to me, says Paul, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. What is my brother Paul saying there to us? He's saying that all the great accomplishments of his life before Christ are worth as much to him now as a dung or poop. And that's a pretty colorful thing to say that I probably 
won't say this next Sunday during church. Well, I hope you are as fascinated by scripture on dung as I am. Uh, That's a weird sentence. Fifth grade Chase would be proud that 40-something-year-old Chase has recorded a podcast about dung. I'm not sure that is a good thing or not, but I will tell you my precious wife is asleep right now, and that's probably why I'm able to record this. What is a good thing, however, is this explanation by friend of the show, Charles Spurgeon, on the wedding banquet parable that Paul tells in Matthew 22. And I'm going to read this, and then we're going to read Nehemiah and Acts, and we will be done for the day. This is what Spurgeon says about that wedding banquet parable Jesus tells at the beginning of Matthew 22. This is the glorious rule of the gospel still. Those who were first called to the great wedding feast were the Jews. Many of them would not come, therefore Jerusalem was destroyed. Now the gospel is preached to all nations and all sorts of people in all nations. Yet the same sinful reaction of the invitation, I'm sorry, rejection of the invitation is constantly being repeated. You who hear the gospel from Sunday to Sunday are called by it to come to the great supper. And, as some of you will not come, God in his infinite mercy is sending his gospel to the poorest and the vilest of mankind. Many of them do come, and thus the Lord provokes you to jealousy by a people who are not a people, and astonishes you as you find that many come from the east and from the west and from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God, while you who reckon yourselves to be the children of the kingdom because you have long been privileged to hear the gospel shall be cast out. The king's servants, quote, gathered together at all as many as they found, both bad and good. The best gathering into the visible church, says Spurgeon, is sure to be a mixture. There will be some coming into it who should not be there. Quote, and, then, and when the king came in to see the guests, for whom he had provided luxurious garments suitable for the wedding, for, as we provide what is supposed to be appropriate clothing for mourners at a funeral, so in the East they provide, on a much larger scale, suitable clothing for wedding guests. He saw there a man which had not put on a wedding garment. He might have had one, for it was given. The fact that this man did not have one was a great insult to the king, as great as the refusal of the invitation would have been. He was not bound to provide himself with a wedding garment. He could not have done it, for he was probably one of those who were called in out of the highways. But there it hung. He was requested to put it on, but this man refused, and he had the impertinence to sit there at a wedding banquet without the indispensable wedding garment. If he could not show his contempt for the king in one way, he would do so in another, and he dared, in the midst of all the wedding feasters, to defy the authority of the king and refuse to do honor to the newly married prince. Quote, and he saith unto him, Friend, how did you come here not having a wedding garment? And that man was speechless. He could give no reply. The king's presence awed him into silence. Then said the king to his servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and grinding of teeth. You may manage to get into the church even though you are not converted. But if you are not trusting in Christ, you are not saved, says Spurgeon, and your false profession will only make your destruction the more terrible. 
Woe unto us unless we are found wearing the righteousness of Christ, unless our lives are made holy by the gracious influence of his blessed spirit. These are the wedding garments which we are to wear. If we don't have them, our presence at the festival will not help us in the great testing time that is coming. For many are called, but few are chosen, says the word. All who hear the gospel are called, but the call does not come with equal power to every heart. And with some, the power with which it comes is not that which saves. It only convinces the intellect so that an outward homage is paid to the word, and the inward obedience of the soul is not rendered to the Lord. God grant that each of us may have on the wedding garment when the king comes in to see the guests. Amen. That's a sobering cup of cold water to the face by Spurgeon. Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 1. These are the priests and Levites who went up with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and with Jeshua, Sarahiah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rehum, Meramoth, Ido, Ginnathoi, Abijah, Mijamin, Maada, Bilga, Shemaiah, Joyarib, Jedaliah, Salu, Amok, Hilkiah, Jedaliah. These were the heads of the priests and their relatives in the days of Jeshua, the Levites, Jeshua, Benui, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah. He and his relatives were in charge of the songs of praise. Bakbakiah, Uni, and their relatives stood opposite them in the services. Jeshua fathered Joachim, Joachim fathered Eliashib, Eliashib fathered Joiada, Joiada fathered Jonathan, and Jonathan fathered Jadua. In the days of Joachim, the heads of the priestly families were Mariah of Sariah, Hananiah of Jeremiah, Meshulam of Ezra, Jehoihanan of Amariah, Jonathan of Maluki, Joseph of Shebaniah, Adna of Harim, Helkai of Merioth, Zechariah of Ido, Meshulam of Ginnathon, Zikri of Abijah, Piltai of Moadiah of Miniamon, Shemua of Bilgah, Jehonathan of Shemaiah, Matani of Joyarib, Utsi of Jediah, Kalai of Salai, Eber of Amok, Hashabiah of Hilkiah, and Nethanel of Jediah. In the days of Eliashib, Joida, Jehanan, and Jadua, the heads of the families of the Levites and priests were recorded while Darius the Persian ruled. Levi's descendants, the family's heads, were recorded in the book of the historical events during the days of Johanan, son of Eliashib. The heads of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, son of Cadmiel, along with their relatives opposite them, gave praise and thanks by division as David the man of God had prescribed. This included Mataniah, Bakbukiah, and Obadiah. Meshulam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers who guarded the storerooms at the city gates. These served in the days of Joachim, son of Jeshua, son of Jotzadak, and in the days of Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sent for the Levites whenever they, wherever they lived and brought them to Jerusalem to celebrate the joyous dedication with thanksgiving and singing accompanied by cymbals, harps, and lyres. 
The singers gathered from the region outside Jerusalem, from the settlements of the Netophathalites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the fields of Geba and Azimaveth. For they built settlements for themselves around Jerusalem. After the priests and Levites had purified themselves, they purified the people, the city gates, and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up on top of the wall and appointed two large processions that gave thanks. One went to the right on the wall toward the Dung Gate. Hoshahiah and half the leaders of Judah followed, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the priest's sons with trumpets, and Zechariah, son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, followed, as well as his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Ma'ai, Nithanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. Ezra the scribe went in front of them. At the fountain gate, they climbed the steps of the city of David on the ascent of the wall, and went above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The second Thanksgiving procession went to the left, and I followed it with half the people along the top of the wall, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, above the Ephraim gate, and by the old gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. They stopped at the gate of the guard. The two Thanksgiving processions stood in the house of God, so did I and half of the officials accompanying me, as well as the priests, Eliakim, Maasiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elioenai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Maasai, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Utsi, Jehohanan, Malchijah, Elam, and Ezer. Then the singer sang with Jezreiah as the leader. On that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. The women and children also celebrated, and Jerusalem's rejoicing was heard far away. On that same day, men were placed in charge of the rooms that housed the supplies, contributions, first fruits, and tenths. The legally required portions for the the priests and Levites were gathered from the village fields because Judah was grateful to the priests and Levites who were serving. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification along with singers and the gatekeepers, as David and his son Solomon had prescribed. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were heads of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers. They also set aside daily portions for the Levites, and the Levites set aside daily portions for Aaron's descendants. There are some who claim to have memorized the entire Bible including uh, a man who just recently died. It was said of him that they memorized the entire Bible. I gotta say, if I ever met somebody who made that claim and I wanted to prove that claim, I think I would say, okay then, I'll believe you if you just recite Nehemiah chapter 12 to me. And if you can do that, then by my goodness, you or either an android, or you really have memorized the entire Bible. Because I, I can't imagine how hard it would be to just memorize that one chapter. Acts chapter 22, verse 1. 
Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in Aramaic, if you'll recall, Paul had been uh, seized in the temple yesterday, and he'd asked the the tribune that had seized him for the ability to speak to the people. So when they heard that he was addressing them in Aramaic, they became even quieter, and he continued, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the law of our ancestors. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, arresting and putting both men and women in jail, as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. After I received threat letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to arrest those who were there and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was traveling and approaching Damascus, about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. Now those who are with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I said, what, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything that you have been assigned to do. Since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and went into Damascus. Someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, who had a good reputation with all the Jews living there, came by and stood by me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And in that very hour I looked up and saw him. And he said, The God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the words from his mouth, since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you delaying? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. After I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him telling me, Hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, Lord, they know that in in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I stood there giving authority and guarding the clothes of those who killed them. And he said to me, Go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this point. Then they raised their voices, shouting, Wipe this man off of the face of the earth! He should not be allowed to live! As they were yelling and flinging aside their garments and throwing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, directing that he be interrogated with the scourge to discover the reason they were shouting against him like this. As they stretched him out for the lash, Paul said to the centurion standing by, Is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went and reported to the commander, saying, What are you going to do? This man is a Roman citizen. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he replied. The commander replied, I brought this citizenship for a large amount of money, but I was born a citizen, Paul said. 
So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. The commander, too, was alarmed when he realized Paul was a Roman citizen and he had bound him. The next day, since he wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and instructed the chief priests in the Sanhedrin to convene. He brought Paul down and placed him before them. And tomorrow we will find out the conclusion of Acts 22 and what happened with Paul's trial. Well, thank you for listening, friends. As always, I hope the Word of God is a great encouragement to you. Please do check out our website, Bible Reading Podcast, for show notes and more information. Please consider sharing the show, leaving a review. We've had some new reviews. I'll do some shout-outs tomorrow. Until then, good day and Godspeed to you. Thanks for listening.